We are in Malachi chapter 3, verse 6 tonight. Malachi chapter 3, verse 6. That is our one verse for the evening. I'm a big fan of expository verse-by-verse preaching. That's why we almost always do it. I think I've preached two non-expository sermons in the two and a half years that we've been at church. So we're in Malachi 3.6, and I want to set this up for us tonight with a little bit of history um, to break this down. Bless you. The year is 609 B.C. Judah is currently in an alliance with Egypt. Egypt has been the superpower since around 630 B.C. King Jehoiakim is on the throne in Judah. And in 609 B.C., the power begins to shift in the region. There's this new up-and-coming kid who is very powerful. The Babylonian Empire is entering into its heights. Nebuchadnezzar is its king. And in 609, the Babylonians have some major breakthroughs, which leads King Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, a real opportunist, to realize, you know, it might be good to switch sides right now. He's very much convinced with the Babylonian victory over Egypt at Carchemish, and they're growing and marching invasion into Philistia. He thinks, okay, these guys have it going on. I'm going to pick this team. And so in 605 B.C., he allies himself with Nebuchadnezzar. In the process, many of the nobles are taken into Babylon. Daniel and his friends, that's how they got there. 605 B.C. is about the time they were taken. And just to make sure there's no hard feelings... Jehoiakim tells Nebuchadnezzar that he'll also be more than happy to pay whatever tax or tribute that he desires. This continues for about three years. And then the Babylonian invasion into Egypt is stopped. Jehoiakim, as the opportunist king that he is, thinks, well, this deal that we've got worked out with the Babylonians isn't that great. Their invasion has just been stopped into Egypt this might be a good chance to switch sides back to the Egyptians. For if they could stop the Babylonian invasion, surely they could come to our aid if the Babylonians have enough strength to wage war against us. And so he nixes the deal that they have in 601 B.C. But unfortunately for King Jehoiakim, Egypt was not nearly as strong as he thought they would be in an ally. And the Babylonians were not nearly as weak as he would have hoped. It was but a hiccup in Nebuchadnezzar's plan in invading Egypt. And so when Nebuchadnezzar hears that Jehoiakim has done this, he brings his armies to Jerusalem and lays siege to the city. In 598 to 597, during that time Jehoiakim dies. His 18-year-old son, Jehoiakim, becomes king. He rules for three months, and then the city falls. Nebuchadnezzar comes in, and he takes Jehoiakim's uncle, Zedekiah, and he sets him up as a puppet king, a, a vassal king. He then proceeds to plunder much of the city and the temple, and to take many more nobles back with him to Babylon. Military officers, skilled craftsmen, because he didn't just want 
money that was owed to him, the back pay, he also wanted it with interest. That took place in 597. Things are okay for a while, but three years into Zedekiah's rule as the puppet king in Judah, he gets kind of antsy. This isn't a great deal that's been worked out with the Babylonians. And so he decides to stop paying the tax, the tribute to the Babylonians. And he forms a multi-nation with other city-states in the region to oppose Babylonian aggression. Well, when Nebuchadnezzar finds out, he's not very happy. He brings his armies in 587, 586 B.C., and he lays siege to Jerusalem. The city is going to fall. Zedekiah escapes one night, only to be caught by Nebuchadnezzar's men. They put him on his knees, and before they rip out his eyes, they make him watch as his entire family is executed before him, so that the last thing that he would see before they take him in chains into Babylon is the death of his family. When Nebuchadnezzar's done with Zedekiah, He's not going to mess around. He's not going to set up another king. And so he levels Jerusalem. He destroys the temple. If it isn't nailed down, he's taken it back with him to Babylon. He leaves only Jeremiah, who also is known as the weeping prophet, and the poorest of the poor people there as remnants among the rubble. The rest of the people would die in captivity. Fast forward. It's 539 B.C. Persia is at its height. They are able to overthrow the Babylonians in 539. A year after this, Cyrus is king. He issues an edict, a law in 538, allowing the people of Judah to return home. They can go back to Judah. They're still under Persian control. They still have to pay taxes and tributes, but they can go home. They can start over. They can rebuild the temple. Now, what I didn't tell you up to this point is that Nebuchadnezzar's success against the people of Judah ultimately was by the hand of God because of the people's unrepentant sin, because of Jehoiakim overturning the righteous religious reforms that his predecessor, King Josiah, had made. It was for their unrepentant sin that God used the Babylonians as an agent to execute his judgment on his people because God is a holy God and God takes sin very seriously. Very seriously. So the people return. And you would think that considering the circumstances of their captivity, that upon returning, the first thing they would do is rebuild the temple. But they don't. Weeks, months, years go by. They don't rebuild the temple. They come up with lame excuses like, well, it's not the right time. Okay? We're... Okay? I, we've got... Listen, our intramural sports team, we're making a deep run. We've got a lot going on. We'll, we'll take care of that later on. We'll, we'll, we'll do these things we know we should do later on. It's just not the right time right now. They say that for 18 years years. And so God finally sends Haggai. In 520 BC, he comes, he preaches a series of sermons, which essentially says, hey, get your crap together and stop making excuses for why God is not number one in your life and rebuild that temple now, right now. The people respond positively. The temple gets rebuilt. Things are good for a while. And then spiritual apathy begins to set in. 
The difficulties of the political, socioeconomic climate of the day make things more difficult when in 485 BC, Xerxes, now the leader of Persia, begins to implement very difficult and strenuous taxation burdens on non-ethnic Persian entities. The empire was expanding, so was the need for money, but instead of taxing ethnically Persian people, let's put the emphasis, that heavy tax burden, on the non-ethnic Persians. The people of Judah felt this. It was very difficult. The fifth chapter of Nehemiah describes the challenges of the day. Unprecedented levels of debt, slavery, confiscation of per personal property, soaring interest rates and inflation. Not to mention famine as well. It was a difficult time and spiritual apathy begins to just spiral out of control. Finally in 460 BC, God sends Malachi and he says, people of Judah, I love you. I love you. But I'm not happy with you right now. You got a lot of messed up things in your life. I love you, but I am angry with you. Most of this letter is about God's indictment against the people of Judah for their sin. In fact, right before Malachi Chapter 3, verse 6. In chapter 2, 17, he said, the people said, and were complaining because they felt like they deserved to be treated better than what they really are. And as we said when we preached on this verse, for those of you who struggle and you feel like you deserve to be treated better than you really are, just remember, if God gave you exactly what you deserved, you'd be in hell. But that's the, that's the minds of the people. They're angry. They're frustrated. They think they should be treated better than what they actually deserve. Things aren't going the way they want them to go, so they start saying, well, where is the God of justice? And God, he delights in those who do evil. Clearly things are not true, but they say it anyways. Then in chapter 3, verse 1, God is pictured, excuse me, chapter 3, verse 1, Malachi announces that the Lord is coming. In chapter 3, verse 2, he's pictured as a refining fire and as fuller soap, a, a dual purpose of both purification and judgment. In chapter 3, verse 3, he's pictured as a divine artist who refines and purifies and fixes his people only to bring the intended result in chapter 3, verse 4, that then they will be what right looks like. Then they will bring offerings and righteousness. Then as we saw last week in chapter 3, verse 5, he is going to judge them. He will be a swift witness against his own people that no one really gets away with anything. No one gets a free check. God holds everyone to account because he is a holy God. And he does not tolerate sin. And no one gets a free pass. Not even his own people. And now you're caught up. And now we're in 3-6. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. Let that just kind of marinate for a second. Verse 6. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. You're not consumed. You're not destroyed. Because I don't change. Judgment? Yeah. The hammer? Yeah. You're going to feel the hurt? Yeah. But you won't be destroyed. Because remember when you were charging me with being faithless 
back in 2.17, saying things like, where is the God of justice and God delights in those who do evil? And you're, you're charging me as if I'm, I'm being faithless to you. Um, lucky for you, that was all a bunch of crap. Lucky for you, that wasn't true at all, because if it was, you'd be destroyed right now. God is coming in judgment against his people. He will be a swift witness against them, but they won't be destroyed. They won't be consumed. Because God, guys, God is not a capricious God who just changes his plans on a whim. He's not indecisive, like, oh, I feel like this today. That's, that's not God. He's not, like, God is not hot and then he's cold. He's not like yes and then no. He's not like in and then he's out. Wrong when it's right, black and it's white. Insert pop culture reference, hashtag Katy Perry. <laughs> Who Pastor Dane actually has met, too. Yep. Yeah, and you didn't know that it was Katy Perry. No, I asked her what her name was. You asked her what her name was, and she said she was a singer. And you said, oh, are you successful? <laughs> The point of this, guys, is God's not a capricious God. Like, that's not like God. He doesn't just think, ah, oh, you know what? I'm going to love you today because, you know, you had a good week, or I'm just feeling in a, in a good, generous mood. Like, that's not how God is. He's not just some whimsical, indecisive being. He's not like that at all. The point of this is that if Yahweh, if the Lord were the kind of unfair and unfaithful God that his people have charged him being in chapter 217, who acted inconsistent, who acted unpredictable, on the basis of just, ah, I just feel it like in this moment, that he would have put them to an end long ago. The point here, for I, the Lord, don't change, therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. The point of this is that God's love outweighs his judgment. Did you know that? His love outweighs his judgment? Oh, don't get me wrong. He is a righteous God, a holy God, and he will hold people to account. But his love outweighs that. And I want to be clear on this because I don't want to mislead people. I have many conversations with people when I'm witnessing, sharing the gospel, and they say, oh, well, God understands. You know, really? Yeah, God understands because, you know, we're... After all, we're, we're married in our hearts, so it's okay that we're doing this. No, you're not. Like, people oftentimes rationalize. They come up with, oh, well, he's a loving God. He's a forgiving God. Yes, that's absolutely true. But he is also a just God who takes sin seriously. But his love outweighs his judgment. And oh, by the way, he doesn't love you guys because he's just feeling in a good mood. Some of you guys, we've, we've been studying this. Yes, God experiences emotions. Yes, God can experience sufferings. <clears throat> but his emotions aren't even identical to ours. We experience grief. God experiences grief, Genesis 6. But even his grief isn't identical to ours because God is able to see both the end simultaneously with the beginning. So even his emotions, they're not identical to ours. We're often governed by our emotions, so we experience an emotion, and because of that, we decide to take a course of action. 
God does experience emotions, but he's not controlled or governed by those things. That's really important here. When we think about God not changing, when we think about God being faithful, when we think about God loving us, he doesn't love you guys just because you're doing awesome. He doesn't not love you because you're doing bad. He doesn't love you because you had a great week. He loves you because he has willed to love you. Like the story starts off back in Malachi 1-2. I love you. I love you. I'm not happy with you. I'm angry with you, but I love you. That's good news. That's really good news, guys. So he makes this reference here in verse 6. He says, oh, children of Jacob. Don't breeze over that. That bears some significance. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. The term is strongly associated with Israel's origins under God's covenant. God's promises to the patriarchs, to to Judah's ancestors, is very much in view here. This is ultimately a reference, children of Jacob. It's a reference to his commitment to his people. That's that's why it says it the way it does. This This is a reference to God's commitment that he's made to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And this is, this is really and can be very strange to us because we live in a very commitment phobia culture in which we're just, we're just terrified to commit. We saw some people come forward today. They wanted to be members. They wanted to commit to this church. And yet for many of us, like we would rather church hop than commit to a body of believers. Like we're, we're more committed to an intramural spirit sports team, then we sometimes are both to God and to his people. God, God's not like that. He's committed to his people. He is faithful to his people. He doesn't change, and that's good news. Because he made promises to their ancestors that they would be his people. He doesn't change. He's not faithless. Even when we drop the ball, even when we mess up. So Jacob's not going to perish. Judah will survive. Oh, they'll feel the hurt, but they will survive because of his faithful, unchanging character to their ancestors, to the oath that he swore to Abraham and the patriarchs. Malachi 3.6 does two things for us today. One, it really continues an ongoing story. And two, it introduces some very weighty doctrine. Malachi 3.6 is a key verse for establishing the doctrine of immutability. That's usually what we mean when we say God doesn't change. Uh... He doesn't change. It's permanent. It's established. It's in, in stone. And yet, we may ask the question, well, is it sufficient to say that God does not change? Or is it the case that God cannot change? And what is there about God that does not change? Is it only his essential being, his attributes? Or does this also apply to Let's say his purposes, his plans, his degrees, long-term, short-term. Don't get me wrong. This text is about God's faithfulness. But we 
cannot divorce his other divine attributes in the process. As Paul illustrates this for us in 2 Timothy chapter 2.13, if we are faithless, he will remain faithful. For he cannot disown himself. Though everything else may change, Israel's God will remain the same. And yet there are passages that speak of God as changing his mind. Abraham and Lot, Moses, Hezekiah. So how do we make sense of those passages which seem to indicate that God changes his mind? Well, I'll do my best. and Maybe we can talk more about this Tuesday night. Co-ed small group. But I think we need to understand those verses ultimately in light of some other verses such as Psalms 33, 10 to 11, in which the psalmist says this, The Lord brings the counsel of nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. God's plans and his purposes, they don't change. God's character doesn't change. Situations, situations change. His character doesn't change. One commentator illustrated it like this. Just as the sun that warms and enables life is also the same sun that burns and scorches it. When God declares his intentions in certain situations, it may be conditioned upon the situation remaining unchanged. But if the conditions change, such as by human repentance or human intercession, God's immediate attitudes and intentions in that situation may change, although ultimately his purposes remain the same. As Solomon tells us in Proverbs 19.21, many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. Back to verse 6. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, you're not consumed. You're not consumed. You're not destroyed because I don't change. Because I have no need to change. He would only have a need to change if by somehow there was a deficiency within him. Like somehow if he didn't know. Like a quarterback going out onto the field and he realizes when he's there that the play that they're going to run to the left is a lot more open then the play that initially they're planning on running to the right. So, you know, he calls for the audible. We're going to run it to the left. Why? Because he didn't know how the defense was going to line up. However, God, uh, he never runs into that problem. He never doesn't not know. He, he knows all things. He knows the very next word that I'm going to take. He knows the very next word that you're going to take before you even speak it or whisper it or text it or whatever it may be. He knows it already as St. Augustine says in his City of God. His vision is utterly unchangeable. Thus, he comprehends all that takes place in time the not yet existing future, the existing present, and the no longer existing past in an immutable and eternal present. It's like hurting my head thinking about this. Um, if, if you don't see right now that he's a big God, you really should begin to see that he's a big God. 
you should begin to say that you're maybe not as big as you think you are and that he's actually much bigger than you thought he was. And that's really important. And yet, we're very resistant sometimes to do this because, well, honestly, we like to think of ourselves as probably a little bit better than we actually are, if we're being honest, right? You know, we decide we're going to work out. So there we go. Front leaning rest position. All right, knock some push ups out. There's one. There's two. Okay. And what do we do? We're like, all right, let's take a protein shake, go look in the mirror. Yeah, man, come on. Oh, yeah, got this going on. I'm like, I'm like Channing Tatum right now. When in reality, we're much like Jonas Hiller. That's true. It's just, just true. Like, American mindset, like, tells you just have great self-esteem, just think positively, and everything will be great. I'm going to be clear right now. I'm not super concerned about your self-esteem, right? I, I, I don't care that much about that. The fact is, many of us, we have too high a view of ourselves and too low a view of God, and that's a problem. We need to take that view of us and push it down and take that view of God and exalt it high because He is beautiful. He is glorious. He is satisfying. He is awesome. And we just sometimes are stuck because we love control. We, we love just being in charge and... Uh, and so, and so we come to some realizations when we think about the fact that God doesn't change. In fact, the, the prophet Isaiah continues this way of thinking. He says, where God transcendently exists outside the bounds of history, he can make known the end from the beginning. As he quotes from Isaiah 46.10, he says, God declares the end from the beginning. From ancient Times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purposes. He calls a, a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country. He says, I have spoken, and I will bring it to pass. I have purpose, and I will do it. My goal today is that as every minute goes by, you have a smaller view of yourself and a bigger view of God. See, Scripture tells us that ultimately, God, He doesn't change. He doesn't change because He lacks nothing. There is no deficiency. He knows all that takes place. Scripture is explicit that not only does God know the future exhaustively, but yet in some sense, He even determines it. And you say, well, to what extent? I say to some, at least. There's a, a line right here, okay? And you can be wherever you want on this line. I used to be way over here, and I would say, all right, God does know everything. And, and if he does determine things, he determines a very, very small, itty little bit. And then, unfortunately, or fortunately, men like Francis Chan, Lecrae, Matt Chandler, pulled, that, pulled me from that to way over here. And that's where I'm going to try to convince you to be tonight. And if I don't, that's okay. We can still worship Jesus and disagree on this. Um, and that's okay. And have sweet fellowship together because I, I know Christians who are all over this on this spectrum. So not only is Scripture clear in teaching that God not only knows the future exhaustively, but in some sense he even determines it. Well, you say, well, what sense, Joe? 
What sense would that be? And I would argue in just about every sense. In fact, that often cliche phrase that we throw around, God has a plan for your life. I'm not big on Christian cliches, but that one has a lot of theological implications that you may not even realize in saying that God has a plan for your life. Not just God knows the plan for your life, Josh, but God has a plan for your life. I'm sure you've heard it. You've heard someone say it. You may have said that in trying to console someone, and I absolutely believe that statement. But in saying that, the implication is is that if he has a plan for your life, that's because God has orchestrated and determined what that plan is because he is the script writer from beginning to end as Proverbs 16.9 will further illustrate. He says, the heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes steps. I set out, I'm thinking, I'm going straight and that's how it is. And then God says, you're going right now and I'm going right now. Proverbs 21.1, one of my favorites. One of my favorites. It says this. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. And the Lord turns it wherever he wills to turn it. You may have not prayed that verse. You may have never even heard of that verse. But often how we even act and treat God... We, we are enforcing that verse, okay? There I am, right? It's October. I get pulled over by the police officer because I was doing something I shouldn't have been doing. I was going too fast. I, I just thought maybe I should clarify that. That's how rumors start. I'll tell you what. Tell you what. I wasn't thinking about theology in that point. I was just thinking, God, like, please, like, have him make him show mercy to me, God. Like, like turn his heart and, and, and have him show mercy to me in a case that maybe he wouldn't unless you intervene. And I'm praying this, like, right now, like, may he show mercy. And then there I was, two months later, at the court in Roanoke. And I'm doing the same thing. I'm thinking, God, if the king's heart is a stream of water in your hand and you turn it wherever you will... How much more the judges or any other persons? I know people don't like this because they like to say, well, God wouldn't make anybody do anything. I'll tell you what, I didn't care about being in control because I know people often say, well, God wouldn't make people do anything because he, he, wouldn't, he wouldn't override their will like that. I'll tell you what, I didn't care about theology then. I just cared about God. Like, I don't want to get in trouble right now. Like, like, turn the judge's heart that he might be favorable to me and show mercy to me. Because I don't want to get in any more trouble. He not only knows what's going to take place before it happens, but to a certain degree, he even determines it. That is the great debate. How much of that does he determine? A little bit? A little more? A little, a little, a lot, a lot, all of it. Um, I was over here at one point. Like I said, I got guys like Chandler and Francis Chan and even Lecrae and rapping in his songs. And it, it, that, that, that biblical, I think, influence pulled me way over here. And I'm seeing these verses, like the verses that I'm telling you tonight. And I'm like, I don't know what to do with this verse. Because this verse completely contradicts like, what I had once thought about God. In fact, I'll submit to you. 
I'll submit to you this. This dice right here. Multi-sided dice. I'm going to submit to you that not only does God know exactly what this will land on, but that he will actually determine the side that it lands on. Nick, tell me what, what, what that landed on. Six. Six. I'm going to argue that not only did God know exactly what that was going to land on, but that he actually determined that number six to come up. You say, that's, that's far out there, chaplain. Like, hold up. You say, give me, I need a verse for that. Yeah, I know. You're used to getting verses. If I told that to you, I'd be like, whatever. And then I came across verses like Proverbs 16.33. Proverbs 16.33, it says, Man may cast the lot, or man may roll the dice, depending on your translation, but its every decision is determined by God. And then I didn't know what to do with that. And I, I, I'm reading these verses, and I'm thinking, whoa. Okay, I'm just like, I'm just like, like, my pride is being broken, and I am falling to my knee, and God seems so much bigger and better than what I thought, and I seem so much lower and more insignificant than what I thought. And I think that's good. Listen, I love saying things like Jesus loves you. and I, I, That's true. In John 3.16, but here's the, here's the deal, guys. Those are great things to know. Jesus loves you, John 3.16. But when difficult things happen... When your life gets turned upside down, you need more than just Jesus loves you. You need to know deep and weighty and powerful things. You don't need to just remember some funny story that the pastor told in which he never actually spent any time talking about Scripture. You need to know deep, weighty, big things about God in those moments when your life gets turned upside down. And that's what we're doing right here. People of Judah, you're not consumed. You're not destroyed because I don't change, because I have no need to change, because I possess no deficiency, because I know all things. And as I said, to some degree or another, he even determines it. That should bring you a lot of hope. That should make you have a small view of yourself and a big view of God. And I'll close with this firefighter surgeon illustration. I like this illustration a lot. Oftentimes we picture God as a firefighter. Something tough happens. God, hey, what's going on? God, this just happened in my life. We think of him like as a firefighter who is constantly responding, 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 responding to situations. I'll tell you what, right now. At no point does God say, oh, I... Jordan, can you just hang on a second? Michael, Gabriel, where were you guys? Listen, I told you I had the week off. You're supposed to be. Oh, God, I'm so sorry. I thought Gabriel, Michael, I thought you, I, I totally dropped the ball, Lord. That's a conversation that never takes place. He's never caught off guard. Our God never sleeps nor slumbers, the psalmist tells us. He's not like a firefighter who just responds to things and difficulties and hardships. But I would submit to you that the much more biblical view is that he's actually like a surgeon who carefully plans every cut Every detail, every incision, though it may hurt and though it may be very uncomfortable. And he does so ultimately for our good and his glory. There is 
a lot of hope to be taken from that. He doesn't change because he has no deficiencies, because he knows everything. He is big and you are small. Rejoice in the fact that you serve a big God who, though he's angry with his people, he loves them because he has a will to love them. You are a good God. We love you, Jesus. We thank you because you lived the life we could not live. You died the death we should have died. You paid the price we could not afford to pay. We owe you everything. And we thank you, God, that you are big and we are small. And I pray that some of us might just be humble tonight, that we might be encouraged tonight in knowing that you are faithful and you're faithful because you don't change. You stay the same. That's really good news. And I pray that that would help and be of some encouragement tonight to the people in here. Amen.